Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer, following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years experience. My name is Kim Kessler, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Here with me are four of my fellow StoryGrid certified editors, Jari Bolander, Valerie Francis, Anne Holly, and Leslie Watts. Each week, one of us pitches a film as an example of a significant story principle. Then each of us look at it from our own angle to give authors a deep insight into story structure. This week, Jari pitched A Fish Called Wanda as a great example of set and setting driving dialogue. This 1988 film starring Jamie Lee Curtis, Kevin Kline, John Cleese, and Michael Palin was directed by Charles Crichton from a screenplay by Charles Crichton and John Cleese. Now, as usual, this is an adult conversation about an adult film, and you may hear some adult words, so enjoy those. Jari, will you please start us off with a genre and a quick one sentence or so summary of the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff to orient us to the story? Thanks, Kim. A Fish Called Wanda is a crime heist story, and the beginning hook is when Wanda and Otto double-cross gangster George, they must seduce barrister Archie to get him to find out where George hid the jewels they stole. In the middle build, when Wanda starts to seduce Archie, Otto must control his jealousy or else their plans will be uncovered. At George's trial, Wanda double-crosses George, which leads Archie to lose the case and reveal his affair with Wanda. Ending payoff. With Archie's career in marriage imploding, he seeks to cut his losses by finding the diamonds before the others and moving to South America. Wanda double-crosses Otto and leaves him at the mercy of Ken, who attempts to kill Otto, but fails as Archie and Wanda fly off to South America with the diamonds. Okay, great. So, Jari, will you take us through the case that you have for set and setting driving dialogue here in A Fish Called Wanda? Sure. So what we have here in A Fish Called Wanda is a real interesting mix of set and setting. I mean, it's set in London, England, yet half the cast is American and half the cast is British, which makes for a lot of great dialogue that's both funny and true to character voice, which we'll talk about in a second. The main four characters also have a unique mindset that play against each other wonderfully. You have Wanda, the femme fatale, who is really playing everyone. You have Otto, the weapons man, who thinks he's smart, but yet he's kind of dumb. Ken, the stutterer, the accomplished to George, is actually one of George's right-hand men. And then Archie, a rather boring English barrister, which he starts to unravel, I guess, as time goes on. So you throw all these characters in the mix, and then you add a diamond heist, and then you get a fish called Wanda. So let's take a look at really the first progressive complication of this film. And it's when Otto and Wanda want to actually steal the diamonds from George, who has actually hidden them, they think. And it's about how they are going to pretty much go the rest of the movie. And, And you see a little bit of both Otto and Wanda. This scene reveals a lot about Wanda and Otto, especially Wanda's motivations. If we look at the five tasks of speech, again, from McKee, and this is from Otto's perspective, you'll see the kind of the inner workings revealed. So Otto's desire, I mean, he wants the diamonds. He's cracking in the safe. The sense of antagonism is the safe. And then George, choice of action. He does this massive verbal rant, as you heard. The action and reaction is Wanda tells him to shut up and think, shut up and think. And then the expression, Otto shoots the safe while he describes how he wants to kill George. Now, Also in the scene, you see a little bit of what Wanda's all about. And actually, Wanda wants to double cross Otto. So you have this entire thing kind of mixed throughout. (gasps) Okay. Okay. Disappointed! Son of a bitch! What do you have to do in this life to make people trust you? Shut up. People are always taking advantage of me. Shut up and think. Where has he moved it? What are you doing? I'm thinking. Thinking what I'm going to do to him. First, I'll hang him up with piano wire. Then I'll... Where are you going? I'm going to talk to him. Then I'll... Talk to who? Talk to who? And, And you can see from here that 
Otto's character is pretty shallow and what I would consider dim-witted, although he seems to really be trying to be educated, but he's really just a hired gun. And this next scene is the one where you see how he is just one, a brute, and you see this throughout the whole movie, but two, for how you hope everything's going to turn out turns out that it gets even more and more progressively weird and more and more stakes high. This scene is just a great example of character voice for both Archie and for Otto. And Otto uses dialogue with Archie to understand how he is reacting with the world. I mean, this is not the first time that Archie is put in a position with Otto, but it's clearly like Otto is just raises the stakes <laughs> pretty much every time. I mean, he's dangling him out a window and they're both oil and water in this scene, but it works really well because it's clear what Otto is after. He's after respect. And so if we look at the five tasks of talk, we find the desire. Clearly Archie wants Wanda, and Otto wants respect and the sense of antagonism. Archie and Otto are kind of battling each other out. The choice of action First, Otto escorts Wanda out of the room, and then the action reaction. Archie's like, well, "What are you? What are you doing? This is you, you can't do that." And Otto, "No, you need to apologize to me." And then the expression of that, and again, this is probably one of the most famous scenes, other than the scene eating the fish, is Otto hangs Archie out the window and makes Archie apologize. I love the way you laugh. Oh, I love you. You're funny. Mm, how come a girl as bright as you could have a brother who's so... Don't call me stupid. <laughs> Mike! Jesus Christ! Otto! Now! Apologize! Otto! What? Apologize. Are you totally deranged? You pompous, stuck-up, snot-nosed, English, giant, twerp, scumbag, fuck-faced, dickhead, asshole! How very interesting. You're a true vulgarian, aren't you? You're the vulgarian, you fuck! Now apologize! What, uh, me to you? Apologize. All right, all right, I apologize. You're really sorry. I'm really, really sorry. I apologize unreservedly. You take it back. I do. I offer a complete and utter retraction. The imputation was totally without basis in fact and was in no way fair comment and was motivated purely by malice. And I deeply regret any distress that my comments may have caused you or your family. And I hereby undertake not to repeat any such slander at any time in the future. Okay. This scene really raises the complications by powers of 10. How, how are you going to not apologize when someone's you know, hanging you out a window? And in a perfectly British way, Archie calmly apologizes. He never loses his cool. And this is perfectly Archie and perfectly Otto. And this just makes for a great scene. One of the things that I think is probably the best scene for set and setting driving dialogue is when in the, the ending payoff, when Archie's going to George's flat so that he can find out where the diamonds are. But what happens is, is he gets to the flat, Ken's there, Otto makes off with the car with Wanda in it. And now Archie is trying to figure out, hey, where are they going? If we apply the five tasks of talk to this scene, it's probably the clearest example of how these are operating. What does Archie want? Well, Archie wants to know where Otto and Wanda are off to. Ken knows where that is, but Ken's stutter is the source of antagonism. The choice of action, Archie tries to calm Ken down. Okay, take it easy, take it easy. The action reaction, Ken still stutters. And then Archie tells him, hey, write it down, write it down. And then the expression is Archie reads Ken's writing and then Ken says it perfectly. Where have they gone? Quick, where have they gone? What? Are you all right? They're Where are they going? They're going to look. They're going to look. What the? What? 
Have you got a stutter? I have. Oh, okay, fine. Don't worry, don't worry. Do you know where they've gone? Fine, fine. Where? The car. Hotel. Hotel? Which hotel? The car. Go on. The car. It's okay. Wait, 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 wait. Slowly, very slowly. The car. The car. No hurry. The car. Sing it. Sing the car. The car. The car. The car. Plenty of time. The car. Oh, come on! I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um. Cathcart Towers Hotel? Cathcart Towers Hotel. Well, where is it? Heathrow Airport. What this scene shows is exactly what Archie wants. Ken can't give it to him. And then finally, the joke or the bit is that he then says it perfectly. Talk about a scene that uses character voice or lack of it, right, to build tension. And then the twist at the end. There are so many great scenes and use of dialogue in the story. And I think at times it's a bit silly and on the nose. I mean, it is was written by John Cleese of Monty Python fame. And it's not for everyone. But I do think it's a great example. And it's a masterful way that John Cleese and his co-writer developed the character voice and the dialogue to make the comedy work. I'm sure we'll have some dissent <laughs> on that. And that's why we love doing this, this podcast. So I'm curious to hear what everyone has to say. Thanks, Jari. As you were talking, I realized that the five tasks of talk really feel like the five commandments in a lot of way. And so I, I think that it's cool to use that as a way to build a scene to reach that kind of pinnacle climax of the tension going back and forth between several characters and then reaching that moment of expression. So it's it's interesting. I heard the exact same thing this time. For the first time, I realized, oh, these are parallel to the five commandments. That fits perfectly. Well, that's sort of what I was trying to get at. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, I think it's similar. And one of the things I know we've always talked about is how much dialogue, how much narrative, you know, all that sort of mix. And, you know, I'm doing some research on like, what's the the right mix, which I don't really think there is, although there's probably a wrong mix. But just to be able to apply these things to some dialogue that you're having problems with, I think it's just another tool in all these this great toolbox that we have that are not only StoryGrid, but McKee and others. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm thankful. Okay, after the third one, I've finally figured it out. <laughs> I appreciate it. That's great. Okay, Valerie, over to you. What do you think? I have so many thoughts. <laughs> but this week, I'm going to do things a little bit differently. Even though I've been studying narrative drive this season, A Fish Called Wanda is one of the films that Robert McKee used as a case study during his Comedy Day seminar. So I thought it might be kind of fun to hear what he had to say about the film, about comedy, and even about dialogue and comedy. Personally, I think comedy is one of the most challenging things for a novelist to pull off because we don't have the benefit of an immediate reaction from our readers. Now, comedy is hard enough as it is, right? But when we write something, it's months or years later before someone reads it, and we may never know if they found the joke that we wrote funny or not. By contrast, stand-up comedians, TV writers, and film writers can test the jokes and make adjustments to get the biggest laughs possible. And we see this in, for example, Friends. They would film it from a live studio audience and rewrite the script on the fly if they needed to. As McKee says, in comedy, if the audience laughs, it works. If they don't, it doesn't. It's as simple as that. One of the things that he covered in his seminar is the conventions of a comedy. And since conventions is something that we study in StoryGrid, I just want to go over a few of them quickly. First of all, no one gets hurt. This is essential because pain creates empathy, which kills the laughs. John Cleese has said that the casting of the dogs in A Fish Called Wanda was critical. They had to be annoying dogs, not lovable labs or retrievers, but yappy, irritating Yorkies. I grew up with a Yorkie in the house, and 
I love dogs, but man, those yaps really do get on your nerves. So in a fish called Wanda, even though the dogs die, there's no blood. In fact, it's obvious that they're stuffed animals. As an interesting side note, when the filmmakers originally made a fish called Wanda, that scene where the third dog is killed and the crate comes down and crushes the dog, originally they had blood coming out from underneath the uh, crate. And when they tested it with audiences, the audiences were horrified, as you can imagine. So they reshot that scene or re-edited the scene. But in one clip, you can still see some red on the sidewalk. If, if you know to look for it, you'll see it. Otherwise, it passes right by you. The second convention is that the joke has to be obvious. If the audience has to think about what's funny in the scene or what the joke is supposed to be, then it isn't funny. For example, when Wanda is at Archie's house and Wendy comes home, we understand the setup, the stakes, and why this is a funny situation. The third convention is that there has to be a happily ever after. Comedies end on a positive note to give audiences a sense of hope. McKee calls comedy the angry art because writers are so fed up with the absurdity of life that they have to make fun of it as a way to cope with it. And lastly, there has to be an attack. Comedies attack social institutions or personality traits, really anything that annoys the comedian. However, from the character's point of view, none of it's funny at all. The angrier the writer is, the funnier the story needs to be. So what's being attacked in A Fish Called Wanda? Well, it's a class system. And what the writers are doing is answering the question, what happens when the middle class becomes criminal? I just want to say a word about empathy and comedy. The first point in the list I just gave is that no one gets hurt in a comedy because it creates empathy, and empathy kills the humor. It's hard to laugh at someone we relate to because that requires us to laugh at ourselves, which is really hard to do. Most people can only do it in hindsight. You know, for example, in middle age, we can laugh about some naive thing we did when we were teenagers. But of course, when we were teenagers, it was all very serious stuff. As the mother of two teenagers, I know. <laughs> and I'm cracking up laughing and, and you know, and, and this is their life we're dealing with mom. However, in A Fish Called Wanda... Archie actually becomes an empathetic character. And this creates a shift in the story and in the audience. We start out laughing at Archie. He's a bit of a clown, right? But when it's clear that he genuinely loves Wanda, that he has no fortune of his own, and he's being set up to fail, we no longer can laugh at him. Instead, we begin to root for him. Now, at around the same time, we realize that Wanda really cares for Archie. She has to, because if she didn't, she'd become the villain and we'd hate her. So although it's still a crime story and it's still a comedy, it's the love story that drives the last half hour of the film. Ken and Otto carry the comedy in that last half hour. Okay, so what about dialogue? Is dialogue different in comedy than it is in drama? As it turns out, yes, it is. And I found this fascinating when I was doing the course. Of course, on the screen, you can dispense with dialogue completely, and you can still have a hilarious scene. The best example that I can think of is the Valentine's Day episode of Frasier, a Valentine for Niles. There is no dialogue whatsoever in that. In Wanda, the scene where Otto apologizes to Archie has very little dialogue in it, and they probably could have gotten away with even less. Comedy is all about timing, and so dialogue has to be economical the writer must get rid of all needless words. One laugh has to be timed with the next, and jokes can be set up or paid off with a line of dialogue. And this is as true for novels as it is for films or short stories or television shows. Timing is everything. McKee actually gives 14 different comic techniques. I'm not going to go through all 14. We'd be here all day but a few of them have to do with dialogue. So I'll just go over those couple. The first one is double entendre. This speaks directly to literal and essential action. So we've got one conversation that's going on, but there's two very different meanings. It's the difference between what's literally being said and what the characters think is being talked about. The next one is repetition. 
And the example he gave was Monty Python's parrot scene, which is pretty funny. That parrot is definitely deceased. Why, he's pining for the fjords. Pining for the fjords? What kind of talk is that? Look, why did it fall flat on its back the moment I got it home? Look, I took the liberty of examining that parrot, and I discovered that the only reason that it had been sitting on its perch in the first place was that it had been nailed there. Oh, but of course it was nowhere. I mean, if I hadn't nailed it there, it would have muscled up to those bars and boom! This parrot wouldn't boom if you put 4,000 volts through it. It's bleeding demised. No, it's, it's pining. It's not pining. It's passed on. This parrot is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to see its maker. This is a late parrot. It's a stiff bereft of life. It rests in peace. If you hadn't nailed it to the perch, it would be pushing up the daisies. It's rung down the curtain and joined the choir invisible. This is an ex parrot. <laughs> In A Fish Called Wanda, it's Otto's constant repetition of don't call me stupid. And finally, you've got puns or wordplay. Now, this, I think, like is a master craftsman technique. I really do. Because if it's done properly, it gets huge laughs. But when it's done poorly, you end up with a dad joke, right? And, and the audience just groans. <laughs> so in the story grid method, comedy comes from the style leaf of the genre clover. And even though comedies can be completely silly they still adhere to story form. The difference between drama and comedy then, according to Robert McKee anyway, is that drama appeals to the emotions while comedy appeals to the intellect. It takes brains to laugh. Thanks, Valerie. That was awesome. I love comedy uh, personally, and I'm married to a stand-up comedian, so I can relate to a lot of the things that you're saying. And I know for my own writing, I'm really trying to find that line that you're talking about between comedy, empathy, drama, and how things can be funny and we can laugh at ourselves. All that stuff is just the bee's knees for me. So thanks for sharing that stuff. I'm going to be thinking on it for a long time now. And uh, I've definitely heard my share of dad jokes and my husband does them on purpose because he loves making people groan. <laughs> Okay, Anne, will you please take us through your thoughts about A Fish Called Wanda? Sure. Uh, Valerie has just said that if uh, it, comedy appeals to the intellect, it takes brains to laugh. And I must be completely brainless because I didn't find this movie funny. It's one of many of the movies that we've watched for the podcast that I saw originally back when it was new. And I remember laughing at it heartily back then. It's, so it's one of several movies that appealed to me back in the day and no longer does. So I decided to follow Valerie's excellent advice, which she gave us in our Live from Nashville episode a couple of weeks ago, which was, if you don't like something, persist with it until you can figure out why. And I did. And it's pretty simple. I felt almost zero empathy for any of the characters. Now, Valerie has said, and I think I believe it, that empathy kills comedy. So I don't know quite what to say about a story where I didn't find it funny and I didn't find any empathy with the characters, but let me go through it a little bit. Yes, Wanda did become a little more sympathetic as I began to realize that her affection for Archie had turned genuine, but her one great skill, deceiving and seducing men with her lovely figure, didn't make her especially admirable to me. Yes, I felt a bit sorry for Ken, the Michael Palin character, with his stutter and the bullying that Otto subjects him to, but that empathy was offset by his being a cold-blooded murderer. Now, Archie struck me as a gullible buffoon, uninvolved with his family, and supposedly we're to forgive him because his wife and daughter are indifferent to him. It seems to be a wreck of a marriage, but... The setup here is strongly driven by the male gaze. I think we, quote unquote, which is to say the default target audience of all action and crime films in the 1980s, which is to say men between the ages of 18 and 34, are supposed to see Archie's wife as a mercenary social climber and compare her spare, thin form and aging face unfavorably to Wanda's physical charms. And we're supposed to say, well, who could blame him? 
seems to be the question. While I found myself asking, who could blame Wendy for having become bored with this guy? And in fact, the moment where she sees the truth and walks away from him struck me as the one heroic moment in the whole movie. And the only instance of some form of of that poetic justice that this subgenre calls for, which I know Leslie's going to talk a little bit more about in a minute. So the empathy that's required for me to care what happens to characters was completely lacking for me. Without it, I didn't feel any particular narrative drive. Now, this is Valerie's specialty, and I don't want to infringe on it, but I have learned so much from her that I'm going to say a few words about it. It seems to me that all three forms of narrative drive depend on the viewer or the reader giving a damn about some character somewhere, and I just didn't. The crime genre overall depends on us feeling intrigue, either puzzling out the crime with the detective or, in the case of the heist and caper subgenres, intrigue as the clever criminals plan and commit this puzzle-like crime and get away with it. The crime here was more of a farce than a puzzle. It was played as largely victimless. The owners of the stolen diamonds don't seem to have any role in the story. So we couldn't even despise them the way we despise, say, the corporation or the institution or the evil uh, rich person who is usually the victim of the heist or the caper. These subgenres, the heist and caper, depend on our liking the criminal protagonists or at least admiring their skills. But there's no intricacy or wit or planning to admire here, at least there wasn't for me. The only skill uh, to admire is Wanda's talent for lying and seduction, and I don't find uh, either of those particularly admirable, especially because they aren't deployed against a villain. They're deployed against goofy John Cleese, who turns out not to be, he's not a villain at all at any point in the story, really. Otto is a violent, low-intelligence thug. Ken is little more than a pair of jokes and not very good ones. Uh, his speech impediment causes hilarious, quote-unquote, delays, and the irony of a professional killer loving animals and then accidentally killing a lot of them is about it. It's about the joke. Uh, I didn't find it at all funny. George never really registered on my mind at all, not even as a stereotyped London lowlife, and Archie is basically a dupe being led around by his genitals. I felt a tiny bit of suspense during the sex farce scene where Wanda and Archie are about to be caught by Archie's wife. Will Wanda escape undiscovered? And I'll admit to enjoying the farcical way the characters just miss seeing each other hiding behind doors and sneaking away. It's a familiar and well-worn trope, and it's still kind of funny. But deriving comedy out of the killing of animals did less than nothing for me, and any suspense I experienced over whether Ken was going to succeed in killing the old woman eyewitness was completely offset by how not funny I found the very idea of rooting for him. The short version of all this is that I'm not in the target audience for this film. So what can I draw from that for myself as a writer? It comes down to something that I find when I read online user reviews of any kind of story. There's a huge difference between objective criticism and personal taste. Does A Fish Called Wanda work on its merits as a heist comedy with a love subplot? Yeah, sort of. It hits enough of the obligatory scenes and conventions to satisfy a lot of viewers, and its humor is supposed to cover its other deficiencies. It's not the movie's fault that its humor isn't to my taste. So, would I give this movie a one-star rating on Amazon and say I hated it? No, of course not. I'd say to myself, okay, self, take notice. Empathy for characters is critically important to you. You should not try to write stories where humor covers for character despicableness. You shouldn't be writing stories about despicable characters at all unless you can genuinely redeem them somehow because you like redemption stories and admiration characters. Your sense of humor is, let's say, a little kinder and gentler than what's shown in this particular movie. But by the same token, what I write does not appeal to the movie industry's target demographic of men ages 18 to 34. So that's my big takeaway from following Valerie's advice and sticking seriously with this movie until I solved the puzzle of why it didn't appeal to me. It's not never write a story like this one, because of course I probably never would. It's more like know who I am as a writer and who my target audience is likely to be for a given story. Be true to that and let the chips fall where they may. 
Awesome, Anne. I think that was a great walkthrough and like how you're thinking about it. And it's interesting because the things that you brought up of reasons why you didn't like it, I could tell I'm like, oh, I really liked that. And it's just funny to me, funny, that um, yeah, humor is so subjective, probably the most subjective thing. And yeah, so I think it's great. And I think humor changes a lot over time. Uh, you know, what we find funny changes a lot over time uh, as the culture changes. Absolutely. Yeah. And in the culture of society of what we find funny and also within us as individuals, what we find funny. Right. So great. I think it's great analysis. Leslie, please share your insights for us. Well, I'm afraid I'm in the camp that didn't enjoy this film, though I do remember thinking it was funny when I first saw it many years ago. And as my fellow round tablers have explained, it's not enough in this context to say, eh, I didn't like it. So I wanted to get to the bottom of why it didn't work for me, particularly because the film was nominated for multiple Oscars, Golden Globes, and BAFTAs, with Cleese, Klein, and Palin garnering awards. The film also maintains high ratings on Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic. And while that's not the be-all, end-all standard, it's some evidence that this film definitely works for a lot of people. Now, I suspect for me, this comes down to these evolving cultural standards and that the film simply doesn't play as well in 2019 as it did in 1988. More on that in a moment. As Jari explained, this is a heist film, a subgenre of crime that is told from the perspective of the criminal and that focuses on the planning, execution, and aftermath of a robbery. Now, unlike the caper, which employs amateur criminals, heists are pulled off by people with experience and skills, and quite frankly, that's part of the attraction. In that, they have a performance element that can add to the emotional stakes in the story. Now, we've talked about how the life value shift in these crime subgenres, where we're rooting for the criminal, that is capers, heists, prison stories, noir, and organized crime, that they don't usually reach full justice, like we see, for example, in a murder mystery with a master detective who exposes the criminal. We've called this positive result in these criminal-focused stories poetic justice. But we can't just root for any old criminal because a heist or a caper isn't only about telling the tale from the criminal's perspective. It seems they must have a point or be righting some wrong in their own right. Otherwise, we can't really get to poetic justice in the end. I mentioned in our Mad Money episode that one of the reasons we identify with the criminal protagonists is that they lack financial security, often because they have been the victims of a crime at the hands of the tyrant or a similar figure. Now here we don't really get that. There's no indication that Wanda is anything but a criminal scheming against her co-conspirators and from the start. So when she's rewarded with the diamonds, it doesn't have that triumphant poetic justice feel to me. It feels like an injustice has been done. Not that her co-conspirators are much better. The true victim here is a nameless, faceless jewelry store in London. So there's no one for us to relate to. But nothing supports the conclusion that Wanda is robbing from the rich to give to the poor. In fact, without the where are they now epilogue at the end, I wouldn't be at all sure that Wanda wouldn't do away with Archie the moment his back is turned. I wasn't surprised to learn that the original ending was much darker, but that American test audiences complained. So that's my take on the life value that we see in, in this story in particular and more generally in heists. But let's look at the conventions because my other hypothesis about A Fish Called Wanda is that it was probably innovative at the time, but since then seems a lot less so. I mean, on the Rotten Tomatoes list of the top 78 heist movies of all time, more than 60% have come out since this movie was released. 
But let's look at the conventions for these crime stories to see if that is true, that my hypothesis that these conventions may have been innovative at the time, but now not so much. For our characters, the criminal protagonists are usually a group of skilled men. In fact, if a female character is involved, she's usually in a supporting role or she betrays the team. Wanda plays that role here, and as the primary protagonist, it's possible that we're meant to appreciate the fact that a woman is getting the better of these bumbling men. And Again, I think that probably played pretty well at the end of the 80s, but today, without the higher moral ground or some point other than enriching herself, it falls flat. So in a way, it's similar to Jackie, the character in Mad Money, who declares her commitment to her co-conspirators by saying, why not? She doesn't really have a point. The other characters that are critical in this are the antagonists, and the villain hero inversion creates the need for a bumbling antagonist or a greedy tyrant as the victim of the protagonist's plan so that the audience can sympathize with the criminals. Now, Wanda here seems to be as greedy as George or Otto and even Ken, so There's little difference between them. I think, again, that this is really about women putting one over on men. And again, I think that played really well in the 80s. But today, I think we see that we want that character to take the higher moral ground. Now, the important part of the setting, to me, feels like the time in which the film was written and released. The UK legal system and its differences from that in the US don't seem to really matter in the end. You could pick that story up and put it anywhere, it seems like, with similar effects. So the setting of this particular story seems like it's more a story of the time than a story that is timeless. In terms of the means of turning the plot, we have the MacGuffin. Wanda wants the diamonds that are stolen from a nameless, faceless jewelry store. The story doesn't reveal why she wants these, other than perhaps the lifestyle that their value could buy her. The investigative red herrings are a little bit different here because we're not dealing with an investigator. The red herrings show up in the way that Wanda attempts to mislead her co-conspirators. Mainly, she does this by keeping secrets from them and appearing to be attracted to or in love with them. And I'm thinking that this is perhaps the reason I don't buy her conversion in the end, because her behavior with Archie seems no different to me than it is with George or Otto or Ken. Another means of turning the plot is making it personal. George, the antagonist, he needs Wanda to give him an alibi. But when she testifies against him, saying that he left the flat at the time of the crime, there's not really a dilemma here for her. There's no downside. She already knows how to obtain the diamonds, and she's just making sure he can't catch up with her. The clock. Again, this is about how Wanda has to obtain the stolen diamonds before George is released or uses them to get a lighter sentence. So the conventions are all there, they all work, but overall, I think that the film was pretty innovative when it was released, and of course, it continues to be appreciated by audience. So I think my takeaway is that if this story appeals to you, or a story like this appeals to you, you'll want to update and innovate the heck out of those conventions. Of course, you'd want to do that anyway, with any story. But you might also look to stories within the subgenre that are more timeless and don't need to be understood within the context of their time. Awesome, Leslie. Thank you so much. I think all of that was so fascinating. And I couldn't help but think of all of the different things that I related to with what you were saying. Well, as usual, I liked the story and I laughed my ass off. I found John Cleese's Archie totally adorable and I got sucked in by the strange, you know, is it real or not romance going on between Archie and Wanda. 
Now, although the story is entirely different, there is something about their dynamic that is oddly familiar and similar to the lovers in my own novel. We have a professionally successful yet still naive man and this self-absorbed, deceitful woman who falls for him in spite of repeatedly trying not to. Another personally interesting aspect that I was able to take away from the story was the use of comedy and dramatic irony. Now, my own novel uses dramatic irony as the primary driver and, you know, hopefully has some comedy as well. And we've noted before that this can be a powerful combination. What stood out to me was the clarity of each character's essential actions in the scene and how that essential action was so contradictory to the literal action they used to get it. So apparently I'm fascinated by lying and deception and, you know, it's probably or hopefully because I'm so terrible at it. It brings up interesting personal questions as to why I would have crafted the heroine of my novel to be a complete liar, and yet I can relate to her so much. So I personally enjoy Wanda's character immensely, and the more it's revealed that she is pulling the strings behind everyone's back, the more I liked her. And I guess I like how smart she is, her guts, her ambition, the way she's unapologetically herself, even when she's outright lying. And it's just so damn funny to watch her work over every man in the film, except when they speak a foreign language, which is her sexy kryptonite. There are several scenes where Wanda is trying to get information from Archie and is going about it in a variety of literal ways. She's fawning over him, asking for his autograph, asking questions about law and procedure. She's outright trying to seduce him. She's crying. But then Wanda goes to meet Archie for the second time at the unused apartment. It belongs to another barrister who's away in Hong Kong. She's been pulling a con on Archie this entire time, but as she readies for him to open the door, she's not getting into character so much as she's readying herself to meet a real lover. The way she looks at him and kisses him don't have the put-on act that we've seen from her earlier. When he returns her locket, via an open-mouth kiss no less, she genuinely hugs him and says thank you so much. Archie goes to pour them champagne, and she checks the locket and confirms the key is still there. This gets her back on track with her plan. They toast to us, she gulps her champagne, and then says, let's make love right here on the rug. It's down to business now. She wants to win him over to such a degree that he'll tell her anything and everything she wants to know about George's case so she can get the diamonds. Her global want is to get the diamonds. Her act-level want is to get Archie to talk to her about the case so she can learn, either now or in the future, where George moved the diamonds. And so her scene-level want, and has been for many scenes now, is to seduce Archie so he's smitten with her, which literally means having to have sex with him. But as she's preparing to carry out this literal action, Archie does something unexpected. What do you really want out of life, Wanda? I don't know. Why do I like you so much? Archie. Hmm? Do you speak Italian? I am Italian. Sono italiano in spirito. Ma ho esposato una donna che preferisce lavorare in giardino a far l'amore passionato un spalio grande. But it's such an ugly language. How about Russian? Yostino blagadat ne sozvushi slov zhavu. Archie? Yeah? Are you rich? No, no, I'm afraid not. What about the house? Well, that's Wendy. She's the rich one. Oh. Along with being particularly funny to me, this scene struck me as particularly interesting because Wanda is in conflict. Her literal and essential actions start to get their wires crossed. As Archie becomes more open about his feelings for her and his desire for freedom in his life, Wanda in turn starts developing feelings for him, and it makes her really uncomfortable. She stops him from talking about why he likes her so much and then asks him if he speaks Italian. It's like she can't decide what to do and what she wants. Is she trying to make him shut up and get this over with? Or is she looking to justify and prolonging their time together? Some new occupants enter the apartment before we get to find out, to a stark, naked, dancing Archie speaking Russian with underwear on his head. But after all of that, we find Wanda back at her flat. Apparently, she was able to escape the apartment without being seen. And it's as if she's waiting for Archie to call. 
And when he does and he breaks things off with her, she seems genuinely sad. What I liked about this scene is that we know Wanda is pulling a con on Archie, which is dramatic irony. And yet Wanda seems to fumble with her own literal and essential actions. We are intrigued. Is she developing feelings for him? Is she going to tell the truth? What's going to happen? In this moment, we shift to mystery. Wanda knows more about what she's thinking and feeling than she's letting on. As I mentioned, this dynamic is extremely similar to my own novel, so I enjoy seeing it play out here. On the internal genre side of things, I tried to pin down an internal genre for Wanda and Archie. Um, It was tricky, so I'll just give a quick overview here. Wanda, at the beginning of the story, her character, she's strong-willed, she's deceitful, and she has selfish motives. Her thought is she is sophisticated, she's cynical, she thinks Archie and possibly all men are dunces to be used, and her fortune is that she is in several fake relationships and she's running heists in London. Now, Archie, his character, he seems honest, but he has a vulnerable will. It's not, he doesn't have an overly strong will. His thought is he's sophisticated in the law, but he's naive and vulnerable in love. And his fortune is he's successful at work, but he's passive and invisible and unhappy at home. Now, by the ending, Wanda, her character is not that different, but she's at least truthful to Archie about her deception. And her thought, she seems to change her mind about Archie, and her fortune is now that she has the diamonds, and she's headed to Rio with Archie. Now, Archie, at the end of the story, his character, he has become a criminal, but he has gained a strong will, and he's taken control over his life. His thought, he is less naive about the world and specifically about Wanda. And his fortune, he's left an unfulfilling life for Rio with Wanda. Okay, so looking at these, what the heck kind of arcs are these things? Because these internal arcs are fairly shallow, it's not easy to draw hard and fast conclusions. We have small changes to each of these three elements for both Wanda and Archie. But for me, the arc feels most like status sentimental. We've seen this pairing before with crime caper stories like Waking Ned Divine and Mad Money, and so something about it rings true. And I think that it fits well with what I see as this controlling idea or theme for the story. Love, success, and poetic justice prevail when people, even criminals and cheating husbands, are simply honest with themselves and others about how they feel and what they want, even if those things are selfish. This is certainly a different controlling idea than we're used to, but that's the fun and, dare I say, genius of comedy, to tell the truth, even if it's not a particularly pretty one. So in this case, it seems that the real crime would be to live a life that is inauthentic. I gotta hand it to you, Kim, that controlling idea is an outstanding distillation of this story. Hey, good, good. So any final thoughts from anyone else? Well, I just appreciate that you brought it back to liking it. <laughs> hey, you're welcome. We have uh, similar tastes. I know, we do. Kind of weird. The thing I think that's really great is we've done a couple of movies that sort of haven't stood the test of time. And I think it's a really great analysis to go back and look at those things that were popular, have been popular, and in some cases may still be popular and see if they resonate with the culture. And I think Anne and Leslie brought up that they liked this movie before, 30 years ago, and just doesn't hold up. So, you know, as a writer, it's something to think of that maybe some of those things that are resonant now in the culture might want to consider how it's going to stand the test of time, because that's really what masterworks do. I mean, they do stand the test of time. So it was really great analysis. I really appreciate everyone's insights, even though didn't quite like it as much as I did. And Kim? Yeah, I think that's a really great point, Jari, about thinking about how our stories could be perceived in the future and will they stand the test of time. So yeah, that's a great takeaway. Thank you everyone for our very interesting discussion on a fish called Wanda. To wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners, which Anne is going to handle for us. Thanks, Kim. This question came to us from the mailbox. It's from a newcomer to the story grid. And they ask a really solid story grid 101 question that gives us a chance to get back to some basics. This person writes, I'm creating a story grid graph for my novel, and I'd like to know whether the values that Sean lists on his graph for The Silence of the Lambs is the same for all genres, or is that for a thriller only? If it's for the thriller, how can I figure out the values for another genre? 
Well, thank you for a great question. For listeners who may not know, the questioner is referring to the actual line graph that Sean Coyne reproduces on the cover of his book, The Story Grid, What Good Editors Know. It's a visual representation of the shape of the story in Silence of the Lambs, and it traces that novel's two plots, the external thriller plot and the internal worldview story of the protagonist Clarice Starling. The graph's X or horizontal axis is the timeline of the story, basically a dot on the graph for each scene from beginning to end of the book from left to right. The Y or vertical axis is what this listener is asking about. How are the highs and lows calculated? What is the range of values? How do you know where to put the dot on the graph? Well, this person is right that the y-axis for Sean's graph of The Silence of the Lambs comes from the value range for the thriller genre. This is a range that runs from life to unconsciousness to death to damnation. You position the neutral value in the middle with life and unconsciousness above that baseline and death and damnation below it. Each scene brings the protagonist closer to one end of the range or the other, and that depends on how the scene turns. So to get to this listener's specific question, each genre does, yes, have its own value range, where in a thriller, the value at stake is life and death. In a crime story, it's justice and injustice. For a performance story, it's honor and shame. For a love story, it's love and indifference. For a war story, it might be victory and defeat, and there are others. How do you know? Well, all of the ranges are defined in Rochelle Ramirez's outstanding Fundamental Fridays series on the Story Grid blog, where she covers each genre in great detail, and we will link to those in the show notes. Plotting a dot on the graph for each scene in your story is not an exact mathematical science. Sorry, wish it was. There are many more than four points along the continuum for any value range, So like the thriller, it's life to unconsciousness, to death, to damnation, but there's a whole lot of points in between those. And in my experience, you evaluate those points more by feel than anything. You probably already know the highest and lowest points of your own plot. And in an early podcast episode, which we will link to, Sean suggests taking your total number of scenes, say it's 80, and assigning values to them from a plus 40 at the top of the graph to zero or neutral in the middle to minus 40 at the bottom. Now, your all is lost moment would get the minus 40, and your triumphant big win moment would get the plus 40, and you'd rate every other scene in relation to that low and that high. The trick is defining points along the continuum, and that definition is definitely going to vary from one story to the next and not just from one genre to the next. Kim Kessler, our very own Kim, has some brilliant insights into meeting that challenge, and I will link to her post on the subject and the podcast episode where she discusses it. But in a nutshell, the y-axis of the story grid graph for your story is the value range for your genre, and the value range is different for each genre. I hope this helps. Thank you for a very good question. If you have a question about any story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT, or better still, by going to storygrid.com slash resources, clicking on Editor Roundtable Podcast, and leaving us a voice message. So that wraps it up for this week. Great discussion, everyone. Thank you, Anne, Jari, Leslie, and Valerie for our excellent editorial insights into A Fish Called Wanda. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp on how to build humorous dialogue within your own stories. You can find links and additional material in the show notes at storygrid.com. Now, if you're interested in hiring a certified StoryGrid editor or you'd like to find out more about what we do, visit storygrid.com editing. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. And if you'd like to support the show, which we hope that you do, you can do that by telling other writers about us and leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. So join us next time as Valerie takes us back to Buckingham Palace for an examination of the dramatic irony in the 2006 historical drama, The Queen. Why not give it a look this week and follow along with us? Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. 